0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is The Lord is Aware of You. In the first half, Rosemary Thackeray shares her address, The Lord knows you and is aware of you. Then in the second half, David L. Coyman speaks on Press Forward with a Steadfastness in Christ. I am a gatherer. It is in my DNA—
1: my parents were gatherers. They relished the opportunity to join together with friends and family, usually with an abundance of food. We often made room for extra people around our kitchen table. It was my uncle for noonday lunch when the brothers were working cattle. Our Thanksgiving dinner with turkey and all the trimmings, including made from scratch hot rolls and pie, was shared with individuals who had no family or place to go and for many years, every Sunday evening, friends came by for homemade ice cream and freshly baked chocolate chip cowboy cookies. I have found joy hosting Sunday dinners for the Thackeray cousins while they attended Brigham Young University, and some even after they graduated. At the end of the meal, we pose for photos, some serious and others humorous, like using our hands to make deer antlers on our heads. I display these photos on my dining room wall beneath the saying, the fondest memories are made when gathered around the table. Most of us enjoy gathering. One lesson we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic is that human interaction is vital to our mental and emotional health. It was not easy for us to follow the rules to stay home and stay safe, to keep six feet apart from other people, to greet each other without an embrace or handshake, and to limit our gatherings to immediate family. We missed congregating for Sunday worship, participating in temple ordinances to gather our ancestors, and meeting to celebrate weddings, funerals, birthdays, baptisms, and more. A well-known gathering parable is found in the New Testament. It is a story of the wedding feast. The king has prepared a great meal to honor his son's marriage. He extends the invitations. People begin to send the regrets, saying they are unable to attend. The food is ready. The time for celebration has arrived, but there are no guests. The king sends his servants into the street to invite others to come and join the supper. In chapter 19, verse 9, referring to this event, it reads, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. You and I are invited to this feast by Jesus Christ, the Master Gatherer. Christ refers to himself as the Good Shepherd. Shepherds gather their sheep to the fold. Jehovah, the Lord of the Old Testament, covenanted with ancient Israel that He would gather in His people. Today I would like to share four truths that can help us respond to Christ's invitation to gather to Him and increase our ability to gather scattered Israel as we prepare the world for the Savior's second coming. Truth number one, He knows you. He knows you and He knows your name. Jesus Christ not only calls the stars by their name, but he knows and calls his sheep, you and me, by our name. We read in the scriptures when Moses, Enoch, Enos, Joseph Smith, and others were called by name. If the Lord knew these people by name, then we have confidence that he knows us also. He knows each of us individually, not collectively as a group of his children. Is not the same level of knowing as I know the students in my class or the sisters in my stake Relief Society. He knows our innermost thoughts, the desires of our hearts, our dreams, our disappointments. He knows each of us one by one. He knows I like Aggie ice cream, and that is my favorite, as well as Ben and Jerry's Chubby Hubby. He knows I'd rather sleep in a hotel than go camping in the mountains, but I went to young women's camp anyway. He knows I have no sense of direction and can easily get lost. He knows I sometimes mourn the missed opportunity to have been a wife and a mother. When my nephew Justin was five years old in late August, he started exhibiting behaviors that were concerning for my sister Laura and her husband Mark. For example, he forgot how to pull up a zipper on his jacket. He would stumble walking up the school bus steps. When washing his hands, Justin said he could not see the soap on the bathroom sink, and he became increasingly ill for no apparent reason. Laura reached out to her pediatrician. The doctor suggested that Justin had just started school, so he was likely experiencing separation anxiety being away from his mother. One Sunday afternoon in early October, Laura's family and I were visiting my parents. Usually, Justin would eagerly respond to my invitation to walk to the school playground for a few rides on the swing. That day, he was not interested. He said, I just want to stay with my mom. As we gathered around the kitchen table eating lunch, Justin had a faraway look in his eyes. A somber feeling permeated the house. Laura, mom, and I sat on the living room couch, the warm afternoon sun streaming in the windows, as we tenderly discussed Justin's situation. We gently wiped away tears as they trickled down our cheeks. The next morning when I arrived at work, I picked up the telephone and called Laura. I can still remember exactly where I was standing in my office in the Richards Building on the campus of Brigham Young University. I said to her, Laura, I know you're the mom, but there is something seriously wrong with Justin. In a quivering voice full of emotion, she quietly responded, I know. I encouraged her to call Sandy, a relative, who was a doctor about an hour drive from her home. I knew that Sandy would get Justin an appointment to see him. Within a few hours, Justin was in Sandy's office, where he immediately made a diagnosis. Sandy sent Laura and Justin home for brain scans at the local hospital. The next day, Justin was at Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah, meeting with two surgeons. One of the surgeons was not supposed to be on call that day, but he was. And not by coincidence, he was a brain tumor expert and familiar with this rare astrocytoma. On Wednesday, a shunt was inserted into Justin's head to drain the accumulated fluid. On Friday, the surgeons performed an eight-hour surgery, removing as much of the brain tumor as they could without destroying Justin's vision. Because Jesus Christ knows you and me, we can trust Him to help us. He knows what assistance we need and when it would be best for us to receive that support. He knows how and when to reach out and succor us. In John chapter 10, verse 14, it reads, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. The Savior knows us. The question for us is, do we know Him? Knowing the Lord is required for us to be gathered and eventually receive eternal life. The Savior added, And if they know me, they shall come forth and shall have a place eternally at my right hand. Elder David A. Bednar stated the following about how we can come to know the Lord. A grand objective of mortality is not merely learning about the only begotten of the Father, but also striving to know Him. Four essential steps that can help us come to know the Lord are exercising faith in Him, following Him, serving Him, and believing Him. Quote. As we come to know the Savior, our desire to reach out and gather others in love, just as He would, increases. I invite all of us to consider what we can do to know the Savior better than we do today. Truth number two, He hears you. In the Book of Mormon, the Savior commanded the Nephites and us today to always pray unto the Father in His, that is, Jesus Christ's name. Elder David L. Frischneck shared the following about the miracle of prayer. He said, While we should pray every day continually— There is nothing ordinary or automatic or formulaic or common about prayer. Every time we sincerely pray to the Father in the name of the Lord, a unique, sacred miracle occurs. And the miracle is not simply that you found your lost car keys or that you remembered the right answer on the test or even that you received an answer to an urgent question in your life, though these might be the miracles you would recall. The miracle is that you actually talked with God and that He, in fact, heard you and answered you. I am confident that each of you could share an experience where you prayed and God heard you and answered you. It may have been when you poured out your soul to Him in audible prayer, or it may have been a silent prayer offered in a public place, or a prayer you held in your heart for years. Sister Bonnie De Parkin, former Relief Society General President, shared the following story about her husband's grandmother receiving a direct answer to prayer.
2: Anna Matilda Anderson was a young girl who lived in Sweden in the 1880s. When she and her family joined the church, they were ridiculed for their beliefs. Anna's mother decided that they should move to America and join the Saints in Utah. Anna was 11 years old when she and her sister, Ida, were sent ahead to earn money and bring the rest of the family. They sailed to the United States, then traveled by train to Ogden, Utah, where Ida left by covered wagon to work for her sponsors in Idaho. Anna was completely alone on the train as she continued to Salt Lake City. She spoke no English and knew no one. Can you imagine the loneliness and terror of her ride? The train pulled into the darkened Rio Grande station just before midnight. The relative who was to meet Anna was not there. Anna stood watching with dread as the station slowly emptied. Finally she was alone with a German family who had no one to meet them. The darkness was thick and threatening, closing in all around her. She later recalled, I started to cry and thought about the last thing my mother told me. If you come to a place where you can't understand what the people are saying, don't forget to pray to your Father in heaven, because He can understand you. Anna knelt by her suitcase and pleaded with all her might for heavenly help. Haven't we all said prayers like that? The German family motioned for Anna to follow them. Having no other choice, she walked behind them crying, Arriving at Temple Square, they heard rapid footsteps. A woman was hurrying towards them. Studying each person, she passed. She looked at the German family, then passed on. Anna caught the woman's searching gaze. The woman stopped, unbelieving. She recognized the young girl, and with a shock, Anna recognized the woman. She was her Sunday school who had left Sweden a year earlier. Pulling Anna tightly into her arms, the teacher wiped away her frightened tears. She told Anna, I was awakened over and over again, and images of the arriving immigrants raced through my mind. I could not go back to sleep. I was prompted to come to the temple to see if there was anyone I knew here. Can you believe it? A Sunday school teacher sent in pitch black night like an angel of light. So you see, Anna remembered. My Heavenly Father more than answered my prayers. I only asked for someone who could understand me. And he sent someone I knew. I now return to Justin's
1: story. As I drove home from my parents that October evening, reflecting on Justin's situation, I had a distinct impression come into my mind. I either believed that when I prayed, God heard and answered my prayers, or he did not. The time to develop faith was past. During the next few days, weeks, and months, I prayed frequently, sincerely, and earnestly for Justin's health and recovery. I know from personal experience that not all prayers are answered in the way we would like or in the time we prefer. We pray, we petition, we wait upon the Lord. Today Justin is a healthy, happy, talented, and kind young man. Justin's life is a miracle. He is a reminder to us that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are in the details of our lives. They were and are mindful of Justin and his situation. They knew what He was experiencing and what medical assistance He needed at that exact moment and who would be able to provide that care. God hears us when we pray. The question for us is, do we hear and know the Good Shepherd's voice? The ability to hear the Lord's voice is an indication that we are His disciples— After King Benjamin's people made a covenant to take upon themselves Christ's name and obey His commandments, King Benjamin admonished them to both know and hear the voice by which they were called. Ministering to others in ways that are uniquely suited to them is one way we participate in gathering. As we increase our capacity to hear Jesus Christ's voice, we are able to receive promptings for how we can best serve others. One day at church, my friend Catherine received a prompting to take a meal to a lady sitting a few rows in front of her. Catherine approached the woman and offered her services. The woman indicated they were moving that week and the meal would be greatly appreciated. During the conversation, Catherine asked if the woman's mother would be helping her family move. In response, the woman said she had recently passed away. Catherine then received an impression from the Spirit. It was this woman's mother who was asking for someone to please help her daughter. Catherine responded to a quiet prompting and helped a sister feel encircled in Christ's love. Sometime later, one morning Catherine prayed to feel her own deceased mother's presence and recognize her influence. That day a neighbor appeared at her doorstep with a pan of sweet rolls just like her mother used to make. Hearing the Good Shepherd's voice allows Christ to gather us and for us to safely gather others to Him. President Russell M. Nelson has specifically invited us to think about how we hear the voice of the Lord and to take steps to hear Him better and more often. Truth number three, He sees you. Perhaps there have been times you felt insignificant, even invisible. It may have seemed that nobody, including God, was aware of you. Even Joseph Smith cried out in Liberty Jail, Oh God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? The truth is, the Lord sees us, even though we cannot see Him. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 7, we read, But behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, that mine eyes are upon you. I am in your midst, and ye cannot see me. My friend Liz shared the following experience about how she knew God was aware of her and the choices she was making. Quote, Some time ago, I transitioned out of a young single-adult ward into a conventional family ward. I wondered if I was giving up the chance to be married as I chose not to attend the older singles ward. As I prayed and asked if the opportunity for marriage would pass me by with this decision, I felt an impression from the Spirit, I know where you are. Heavenly Father was aware of the decisions I had made, and He knew exactly where I was and what I was doing. He knows where to find me when he needs me. It seems that when we feel little or no control over our circumstances, that is when we earnestly seek an affirmation that the Lord sees us and is aware of our situation. That is how I felt last summer when both my parents were experiencing failing health. My dad was diagnosed with cancer, followed by the discovery of a volleyball sized tumor on his kidney. My mom had several health challenges, all of which were compounded by advanced dementia, which seemed to progress exponentially with my dad's declining health. I was starting a new position at work, my schedule would be more demanding, and I was anxious about how my three siblings and I would care for my mom once our dad passed away. During this time, my friend Brad shared with me his experience when his mom was dying from lung cancer just a few years earlier. He said, quote, I prayed to ask Heavenly Father to relieve my mom's burden. The thought came to me that my mom was in His hands and care, and that my responsibility was to be faithful to Him and to my mom. It was a sobering experience for me. I was reminded that the Lord is not in some distant galaxy far away from us. He is near to us and in the details of our lives. He knows and controls when it is time for us to return to Him. One day I went to the temple with the purpose of seeking an answer to a course of action for my mom. As I waited to participate in the ordinances, I was seated next to a beautiful painting of a young girl with long blonde hair cascading over her shoulders. She sat in a bright green pasture against a clear blue sky with flowers and bloom all around her. I thought of my mom. When she was a young girl, she had long blonde hair. She wore it in braids. She found joy in flowers and gardening. The impression came that many family members were waiting on the other side of the veil to greet her. As I spent time pondering, I picked up the scriptures, and the pages fell open to Doctrine and Covenants, section 44, verse 6, which reads, Behold, I say unto you, that ye must visit the poor and the needy, and administer to their relief, that they may be kept until all things may be done according to my law which ye have received." My answer was, I just needed to keep visiting Mom and doing what I could to relieve her suffering. As Brad had said, the Lord was mindful of us and of Mom's situation. Five days later, Dad passed away. In the early morning hours on the day of Dad's funeral, Mom quietly crossed the veil to be reunited with her sweetheart. My prayers were answered and her burden was lifted. The Savior sees us. How often do we look for Jesus in our life? One day during the COVID-19 stay-at-home period, a lady in our neighborhood suggested that we have a look for Jesus' day. She invited us to put a picture of Jesus in our front window, and then the kids and adults could walk around the neighborhood looking for photos of the Savior. My heart was lifted and testimony strengthened as I strolled through the neighborhood on Sunday evening and noticed the quiet, simple declarations of, We believe in Christ. In the scriptures, the prophets repeatedly admonish us to remember the goodness of God. Likewise, we are commanded to thank the Lord in all things. There are many blessings that come from following this counsel. One key blessing is the ever-present gift of His Spirit to be with us. The Spirit will guide our journey back to God. Recognizing and recording moments when we experience Christ's hand in our lives is not just for our benefit. Sharing these stories with others can help them to trust in God and keep His commandments. Indeed, bearing witness of the Savior and of His goodness is essential to gathering others to Christ. As we share testimony, the Spirit can confirm the truth to another's heart. Throughout time, women who had the courage to stand as witnesses of Christ have had a profound effect on individuals and communities. Think of the women who in the early morning hours went to the Savior's tomb only to find it empty—the Samaritan woman at the well, and Abish in the Book of mormon President M. Russell Ballard promised the more you recognize the Lord's hand in your lives, the more you will see it in your lives today. Truth number four, He loves you. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf stated, quote, Our Savior, the Good Shepherd, knows and loves us. He knows and loves you. He knows you when you are lost, and He knows where you are. He knows your grief, your silent pleadings, your fears, your tears— It matters not how you became lost, whether because of your own poor choices or because of the circumstances beyond your control. What matters is that you are His child, and He loves you. He loves His children. My colleague Jeff shared the following about his daughter Caroline and Christ's love for her. Due to complications at birth, Caroline was deprived of oxygen, causing severe disabilities. Jeff said, Sometimes, frequently, Caroline becomes sad. She will cry and cry, and neither we nor the doctors can determine what is wrong. We just have to wait it out and pray. Caroline is often sad and loud at church, or sometimes happy but still loud, and Christine or Lizzie or I or a kind ward member will take her out to the foyer of the chapel where we push Caroline around in her chair, calming her with the movement. And now the rest of the story in Jeff's own words.
3: One Sunday a couple of years ago, I came to church pushing an especially sad Caroline, thinking we might just stay for the sacrament. As I walked the foyer and Caroline remained sad, I began to wonder if we would even make it to the sacrament. All my efforts to comfort her seemed fruitless, and Caroline's crying was certainly disturbing others. But then the sacrament hymn began, and Caroline calmed briefly when I started to sing. She quickly got fussy again, so I put my face close to hers, and I sang to her— she quieted and listened. The sacrament hymn that day was reverently and meekly now, which is written in the first-person voice as if the Savior were singing. Admittedly, I was focused on Caroline and not the song until we came to the fourth verse, when I found myself singing these words to my daughter. I have loved thee as thy friend with the love That cannot end. I looked into Caroline's big blue eyes and I felt deeply the tender, personal truth of those words for my daughter. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the world, loves Caroline with a love that cannot end. Even there in the foyer, in her less than ideal state, Caroline is loved. When she is sad or hurting and her parents are clueless and incapable of comforting her, there is one who is her everlasting friend who knows how she feels and how to succor her. The corollary is also true. Jesus is my friend, and he is yours. He knows my frailties, including my frailties of faith— And he knows yours. And he loves us not in spite of those frailties, but with a full, compassionate understanding of them. He loves us in our crucible of spirit because he has felt what we feel, our doubt and our discouragement, as well as our sin and sorrow.
1: The Savior loves us. Do we love him? If we love God with all our might, mind, and strength, we are promised that His grace is sufficient for us. In Hebrew, the root word for grace is hanan, which means to bend or stoop in kindness. What a powerful image! Because of Christ's atonement, He is bending down or stooping in kindness to help us through our challenges in life. When we love the Savior, we in turn extend charity, the pure love of Christ, to others— We love without judgment or conditions or any expectations of love in return. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland suggested that one day we will individually report on our love for God. Quote, My beloved brothers and sisters, I am not certain just what our experience will be on Judgment Day, but I will be very surprised if at some point in that conversation God does not ask us exactly what Christ asked Peter, Did you love me? I think he will want to know if, in our very mortal, very inadequate, and sometimes childish grasp of things, did we at least understand one commandment, the first and greatest commandment of them all Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. I invite all of us to make a conscious effort to develop a testimony of these simple truths. It will be a quest of a lifetime to come to know the Savior, to hear Him, to see and recognize His hand in our lives, and to demonstrate our love for Him. Having a conviction deep down in our heart that the Lord knows us, sees us, hears and loves us will change our life. We will know why we are here and how we should be spending our time. Our confidence will increase. We will not be swayed by the opinions and philosophies of the world. It is our work to respond to the invitation to help gather scattered Israel and prepare for the Savior's second coming. President Russell M. Nelson has indicated that this gathering is the greatest challenge, the greatest cause, and the greatest work on the earth today. To the sisters, he specifically said, We need you. We need your strength, your conversion, your conviction, your ability to lead, your wisdom, and your voices. When these four truths are written in the fleshy tables of our hearts, we will care less about what people think about us, including how many likes or followers we have on our social media accounts. The Lord's love is deeper and more enduring than any fleeting praise and adoration the world has to offer. Knowing the Lord has our back will give us the courage and confidence to face any trials that will come our way. When our foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ, the devil may send forth his winds, yea, his shafts and the whirlwinds, but they will have no power to drag us down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. Several years ago, I was earnestly seeking an answer to a life question. One Sunday, I approached the Lord in fasting and prayer. I determined to end my fast after I met with the stake presidency to be set apart for a calling. During the setting apart, the blessing I received was beautiful, but my question remained unanswered. At the conclusion of the meeting, the stake president invited me to remain after the other seven or eight people had left the room. He then told me that there was more to my blessing, but he felt it was too personal for other people to hear. In that sacred setting, as the stake president and his counselor once again placed their hands on my head, I received direct, unmistakable personal revelation— This event has been a touchstone for me. When I begin to wonder if God knows me, sees me, hears my prayers, and loves me, I reflect back to that evening when God answered a prayer that was known only to Him and me alone. The Good Shepherd has extended the invitation to each one of us. We can use our agency to respond or not. He will never force us. Our positive response will result in Him gathering us into the fold. The lyrics to the well known Christian hymn, Softly and Tenderly, say it best. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, He's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. I joyfully testify of these truths. I know that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ live. They are mindful of me and of you. They are in the details of our lives. In the name of Jesus
0: Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is The Lord is Aware of You. We've just heard from Rosemary Thackeray. After the break, we'll return with David L. Koyman for Press Forward with a Steadfastness in Christ. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is The Lord is Aware of You. Next is David L. Koyman, BYU Professor of Physiology and Developmental Biology at the time of this address, titled Press Forward with a Steadfastness in Christ.
4: Having a hope in Christ is a theme woven throughout the scriptures. The word hope can imply a simple wish— or it can suggest a declaration founded upon experience and knowledge. The Apostle Paul said that, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The hope which Paul describes is much richer and different than a mere wish. Rather, it is related to knowledge and leads to a life of diligence. If we take a difficult class and put forth little effort to study or prepare for exams and assignments, We might say, I hope I get an A in this class, but in reality that hope is nothing more than a wish, and deep inside we know it. If, however, we study effectively, monitor our progress, make corrections when necessary, and do all in our power to perform well in the class, we may be able to declare with assurance, I have a hope that I will get an A in this class. Such a hope will be well-founded, and deep inside we will have a confident assertion that it will come to pass. According to Paul, if something exists which we cannot detect with the natural senses, then faith is the evidence that it is real. For those of us that have faith in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, that evidence, born of faith, is very real. Paul said that faith is the substance of things hoped for, or in other words, Hope is made up of the things in which we have faith. Faith precedes a true enduring hope that motivates us to press forward with a steadfastness in Christ. A life well founded upon faith in Christ, sincere repentance whenever needed, obedience to His commandments, humility and meekness, solidifies a true hope in Christ and naturally motivates one to demonstrate that faith and hope through diligent service. Following this course, we will experience joy throughout our lives. Elder Richard G. Scott declared, True, enduring happiness, with the accompanying strength, courage, and capacity to overcome the greatest difficulties, will come as you center your life in Jesus Christ. Obedience to his teachings provides a secure ascent in the journey of life. That takes effort. While there is no guarantee of overnight results, there is the assurance that in the Lord's time, solutions will come, peace will prevail, and happiness will be yours. In the Book of Mormon, Aaron, the missionary companion of Ammon, told King Lamoni's father If thou desirest to know God, if thou wilt bow down before him, yea, if thou wilt repent of all thy sins and will bow down before God and call on his name in faith, Believing that ye shall receive, then shalt thou receive the hope which thou desirest. A life of repentance, obedience, and service, motivated by a love of God and unshaken faith in Christ, will generate a hope in Christ that will extend into the eternities. On the other hand, without a perfect brightness of hope in Christ, we may desperately cling to the scriptures and living prophets without ever truly believing Christ. When the storms of life blow, our faith may waver. The Apostle Paul declared, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. I have been fascinated for years with a portion of the vision of the Tree of Life recorded in 1 Nephi chapter 8. In this vision, Lehi describes two groups of people who actually caught hold of the iron rod as they made their way to partake of the fruit on the Tree of Life. Remember that the iron rod represents the word of God, and the fruit on the tree represented the love of God. One group pressed towards the tree, clinging to the rod of iron, while another pressed forward, holding fast to the rod of iron. The group that was clinging to the rod did make it to the tree and partook of the fruit. But afterward, when the world mocked them, they were ashamed and fell away. The group that held fast to the rod as they pressed forward also partook of the fruit, but then stayed. What was the difference? Clinging to me suggests desperation, like what might be done if there was fear or lack of hope in their lives. Perhaps they did not really believe Christ or accept the Atonement, so that when the world pressed upon them, they became ashamed and fell away. The Apostle Paul taught the saints in Rome, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, And rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and hope maketh not ashamed. The group that Lehi saw holding fast to the rod endured to the end. Apparently they had an unshaken faith in Christ and a perfect brightness of hope because of the Atonement. When I read the words holding fast in the description of this vision, I imagine individuals that stand firm against adversity or tribulation because of a hope in Christ. The Apostle Paul counseled the saints to be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. We don't rejoice if we hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. We do rejoice, however, if we have a hope in Christ, and that hope helps us to be patient in tribulation. Nephi, who shared in Lehi's vision of the tree of life and witnessed those clinging to the rod of iron later to fall away, expanded on this thought. He said, And now, my beloved brethren, after ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for ye have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Note that Nephi is telling us that after we've gotten into this straight and narrow path, we must press forward with unshaken faith that leads to a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men, or what we may call charity. Unshaken faith, a perfect brightness of hope, and charity, or a love of God and of all men, that is the key. What promise do we have if we follow this formula? Nephi goes on to say Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. And now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way, and there is none other way nor name given under heaven, whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. A hope in Christ will motivate us to repent of our sins. Repentance will expand our capacity to receive and feel the Spirit and enjoy the companionship of the Holy Ghost. It is through the power of the Holy Ghost that we may abound in hope. The corollary is also true. Sin causes the spirit to withdraw. Our faith in Christ diminishes, and we lose hope. If life seems hopeless, we may want to at least consider our own personal worthiness, remembering that even such things as ingratitude constitute sin. If we have fallen short, we can take comfort in knowing that Christ is mighty to save and that he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and the Lord will remember them no more. Attending the temple as frequently as our circumstances will allow is a great way to enter into this upward-lifting spiral of increasing faith and hope. I have considered that one of the great blessings associated with attending the temple is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 109 the inspired dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. In it, Joseph Smith blessed all those who shall worship in the temple that when they transgress, they may speedily repent and return to God. What a tremendous blessing to be given a desire to speedily repent so that sin doesn't have time to compound or fester. The prophet Ether did cry from the morning even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God unto repentance, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith. The natural man, clinging to the word of God, but lacking a foundation of sincere repentance, faith, and hope, lacks an eternal perspective, and tries to get through the here and now, asking, Why me when trials arise? As the trials persist or intensify, he is not willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, and is prone to murmur, saying, It must not be true, or life wouldn't be so hard. A son or daughter of God will humbly submit to adversity, knowing that ultimately God is in charge having a hope that they will be better for the experience, and all will be well in the end. The Apostle Paul taught, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. C.S. Lewis put it this way, When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, He often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along—illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation—he is disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving— than he ever dreamed of before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. This lesson has been taught to me and my wife in some profound ways. My wife has ancestors who were faithful Latter-day Saints going back to the early history of the Church. They were among the pioneers who traveled to the Salt Lake Valley in wagons and handcarts. The faith and dedication of her family have remained strong over the generations. Our two oldest daughters, Christine and Lacey, were the fourth generation of sister missionaries following a pattern starting with their great-grandmother, Cecil Vance Coombs. Our 14-year-old daughter, Mackenzie, has expressed a similar desire to follow in their footsteps when she turns 21. I do not have a genealogical pioneer heritage, but with all members of the Church, I share in the spiritual heritage that Pioneers left us. In our journey through life together, my wife and I have seen some parallels to the journey of the Pioneers to the Salt Lake Valley. We started out with very little in the way of material possessions. We had great faith in one another, in our Heavenly Father and Christ, with the goal of the eternal family. Looking back from my current perspective, life was easy in the early years of our marriage. There were babies to be born, children to be raised, degrees to be earned, a career to be pursued, and callings to be fulfilled. For the most part, the course was a slow, steady, methodical journey across the great plains of life. There were occasional hills of adversity to climb, like the births of our third and fourth children ten years apart, where serious complications resulted in the babies being placed in ICU for days. However, at the top of each hill of adversity, We experienced a panoramic view on life, and then there always followed the beautiful, peaceful valleys before encountering the next hill. Life was good. The sense of progress towards goals was strong. Our love and faith in each other and God continued to grow in a steady, deliberate way, matching our journey. As our journey through life progressed, just as in the case of the Pioneer Trek, the trail became steeper and the hills bigger. Occasionally, the Lord provided us with experiences that greatly increased our faith in Him, increasing our understanding of how personally, individually, we were each loved and nurtured. One major hill we encountered came at about 11.55 a.m. on June 3, 2001. I stood up to close our ward fast and testimony meeting when I felt a sharp pain and tearing sensation followed by the gushing of blood in my left pelvis— the thought came to me quite distinctly. I just ruptured my femoral artery. I'm going to bleed to death in a few minutes. I looked out over the congregation to my family, thinking this might be the last time I would see them in this life. I debated whether I should say something, but decided decided that I did not want to disrupt the spirit of the meeting. So after announcing the closing hymn and prayer, I just sat down. Because our second meeting was last in the block schedule, I knew that I had several interviews to conduct, another business that needed to be addressed. I was still alive and decided to continue my duties. <laughs> Nearly six hours later, I finally took the time to go to the emergency room. I explained to the nurse reception desk I thought I'd rupture my femoral artery at noon that day. She kind of chuckled and said, "No, you'd be dead by now." She asked me to describe the pain and thought it was probably a kidney stone. We sat in the waiting room about 30 minutes. When we were finally taken back to an exam room and able to see a doctor, I described the pain and said that I thought I would ruptured my femoral artery about noon that day. He gave a little chuckle and said, You would probably be dead if that were true, and also indicated that he thought it was a kidney stone. He ordered a differential CAT scan to look for the stone. A few minutes after the procedure, the doctor came back into the room quite sober and said, There's a large pool of blood in your abdomen. I was rushed to another hospital. Another procedure was done to localize the site of the rupture, and I was prepped for emergency vascular surgery. It turned out that I actually ruptured my left iliac artery, which is larger than the femoral. <laughs> the reason I did not bleed to death is because shortly after the aneurysm, a flap of inner arterial lining folded over, occluding the artery above the rupture. Experiences like this provide evidence for the truth that God knows each of us personally. We are cared for as individuals. He knows exactly how to succor us. We consider ourselves very blessed to the Lord. However, I remember the words of C.S. Lewis, Little people like you and me, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate posts in the great battle. I chose to speak about hope today because I've learned a lot about it over the past several years. There were other serious health issues, other surgeries, and other miracles. However, our trudge up Rocky Ridge in the face of the icy winds of adversity began on the afternoon of February first, two 2006, when we received the shocking and unexpected news from Kansas that our daughter Lacey was in a hospital in a coma. She died the next day. We will be eternally thankful for the rescue parties the Lord sent in the form of loving family and friends. Truly, they fulfilled the admonition of Alma to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We are especially thankful for the anonymous individual who allowed us to purchase a gravestone immediately after Lacey's death. This brought a great deal of comfort. It was months before I began to see color in a life that had become gray. I feared that I might forget how to laugh or never feel genuinely happy again. A day still does not go by that I do not think about Lacey several times. She was too well-loved to ever be forgotten. Gradually, the road became less steep and rocky. However, real healing for me did not come until 18 months later, after I climbed one more section of Rocky Ridge. To set the stage for this experience, I will start by telling you that I have kept a daily journal for years. Writing in my journal is somewhat therapeutic. I record my thoughts and feelings along with events in my life. I also need to tell you that my career has caused me to travel a considerable amount. These trips involve many airline carriers, both foreign and domestic, to nearly every continent in the world. During all of this traveling, I had never lost a bag until one trip about six months after Lacey's death. I was on a long trip that took me from Argentina to Chile to Ecuador, back to the U.S., through Miami to Reno, before returning home to Provo. All the bags made it through to Miami okay. However, somewhere between the nonstop flight from Miami to Reno, one bag was lost. I always put my journal in a carry-on bag so that it is with me at all times. I cherish my journals. However, for reasons that I cannot explain, I inadvertently packed it in a checked bag for the trip from Quito to Reno. As you might have guessed, my journal was in the checked bag that was lost. Against high odds, that bag was never recovered by the airline. That volume of my journal included daily entries for six months following Lacey's death, At the time, it was lost. I was devastated. The loss consumed me for months. Why did this happen, I wondered. After my experience with the aneurysm, I had firsthand knowledge that God is very much involved in the details of our lives. I knew that God knew where that bag was, but repeated prayers, accompanied often with fasting, did not bring it back. Eventually, I accepted the fact that the journal was not coming back and that there must be a reason for it. It wasn't until a little over a year later, near the end of a sabbatical leave at the University of Iowa, that I learned the reason for the loss of my journal. I was telling my wise bishop, Val Sheffield, of the loss of the journal, pining over the experience again and wondering why. He stopped me and said, I know why. It's because what you wrote following your daughter's death wasn't right. It didn't actually represent how you should respond to what happened. He went on. You need to write how you feel about our death looking back from the perspective you have now. It's a more accurate one. I was stunned. He did not know that over the past year I had been engaged in diligent study, pondering, and prayer about faith and hope. But the Lord knew. I went back to my apartment and thought about that for most of the night. I did rewrite my feelings about Lacey's death. It turned out to be a sacred and singular experience. Although I can't recall what I originally wrote in my lost journal, I am confident that it contained much of bitterness and anger. I am now glad that it is gone. As my wife and I journey on, the depth and vitality of our faith and hope in Christ grows. We believe Christ when He tells us that He has the desire and power to save us. That steadfast faith is the bedrock of our bright hope that through our temple marriage we will realize our goal of an eternal family, including Lacey. We have an assurance that the struggles involved in getting back home will seem but a small moment. We have cleaved together in a way that perhaps is not possible without the extreme heat and pressure of adversity. We can see that good can come from adversity if we have a hope in Christ. However, I think that Elder Neely Maxwell put it best when he said, Those who emerge successfully from their varied and fiery furnaces have experienced the grace of the Lord, which he says is sufficient. Even so, brothers and sisters, such emerging individuals do not rush to line up in front of another fiery furnace in order to get an extra turn. (laughs) In our most recent general conference, President Thomas S. Monson said, Mortality is a period of testing— a time to prove ourselves worthy to return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. In order to be tested, we must sometimes face challenges and difficulties. At times, there appears to be no light at the tunnel's end, no dawn to break the night's darkness. We feel surrounded by the pain of broken hearts, the disappointment of shattered dreams, and the despair of vanished hopes. We join in uttering the biblical plea, Is there no balm in Gilead? We are inclined to view our own personal misfortunes through the distorted prism of pessimism. We feel abandoned, heartbroken, alone. If you find yourself in such a situation, I plead with you to turn to our Heavenly Father in faith. He will lift you and guide you. He will not always take your afflictions from you, but He will comfort and lead you with love through whatever storm you face. Things do work out in the end if we trust the Lord. We cannot control some events that cause us great pain, but we can always control how we respond to them. We have no lasting power over another's agency, but we can control our own for eternity. We can choose to live in a world of disappointment, frustration, or anger. We can choose to take counsel from our fears, let faith slip away and have our hope diminish. But remember that God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. Life is so much sweeter and richer if we have the humility to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon us, trusting that all things shall work together for good to them that walk uprightly. Near the end of the book of Alma, there is a great lesson about the significance of how we choose to respond to difficulties. The Nephites and Lamanites had been through years of wars. There had been much loss of life on both sides, much in the way of trials and afflictions. Listen to this assessment of the people after peace was finally reestablished. But behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war, and many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God, even in the depth of humility. Wouldn't it be better to be among those whose hearts were softened as they did humble themselves before God? I wish to acknowledge that in the audience of people who are listening to my address today or who may listen to or read it in the future, I am sure that there are some, perhaps many, who have had far more difficult trials to endure than I. I do not wish to trivialize your trials if you fall into that category. I do pray that perhaps something of what I have learned from my experiences about hope may translate to your situation as well. We can all gain great comfort from these words from the Lord. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye are little children, and ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and am prepared for you. And ye cannot bear all things now. Nevertheless, be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours, and the blessings thereof are yours, and the riches of eternity are yours. And he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious, and the things of this earth shall be added unto him even a hundredfold, yea, more. It is my hope and prayer that we will all remain firm and resolute in following the Savior, developing a steadfast faith in Him, leading to a perfect brightness of hope for what lies ahead, including the eternities. I bear witness that God lives. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus lives. He is my Savior, my Redeemer, my Advocate, and my Friend. I bear witness that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. A prophet, even Thomas S. Monson, once again speaks on the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was The Lord is Aware of You, with thoughts from Rosemary Thackeray and David L. Coyman. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.